Yeah, you know what? I think that um, the urgency of talking about all of our current events and the pandemic included makes it a little bit frustrating to catch up with people because, yeah, you know, it it is kind of interesting to hear how everybody's dealing with uh, our present world, but. Um, I, lo- I love learning more about these, uh, uh, learning more about people that I, I know and work with and, and whose work I respect. And I wish that our conversations were not always so absorbed by how terrible things are and how everything's changing. Yeah. I'm, I, I mean, Sime, uh, okay. First of all, Sime is an incredible illust- illustrator and her story of like just, realizing that art was such an important part of her life that's super interesting and i i want to know a lot about it and carlos too who's who is a motion graphics artist one that i really respect and the few times when we've been able to work together i'm just blown away by what he does i think he is so talented in this very specific field of of like moving graphics yeah so i don't know i such interesting people i'd love to just continue to talk with them as we like talked about it in our um introduction together us three and hearing what carlos and cma have to say about you know COVID 19 i it, it does feel a bit repetitive and redundant in terms of especially people working in media production and ed tech i feel like we're all kind of very similarly dealing with I the almost same feel things. like we could just come up with like a multiple choice uh, for how you're <laughs> dealing with COVID. There's like an A, B, C, D, and you just say, which one of these, like in what way are you responding? Yeah, um, we'll make it a fun game yeah. and then just brush it aside once we're done. <laughs> just like, all right, we're <laughs> done with Fill that. in the blank. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Sime's story, it, that just really touched me. I just think that's a really wonderful life lesson that you don't always have to find like a perfect solution or a perfect path forward that feels like it ticks all your boxes. Even just moving towards something that feels right, even if you abandon it at some point, like you may be able to come back to that and build on that uh, knowledge and experience. I just think that's... I think that's a wonderful lesson. I mean, hopefully yeah. there will be some unhappy pre-med students listening into this and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I want to be <laughs> like Sime. Yeah, it's OK to quit things. It's also OK to quit something and just like tease out the, the tiny part of it that you really did like. Like maybe that's what was drawing you in. Yeah, yeah it's like being honest with yourself and self-aware about what your passion really is. And it's also important to listen to your gut. If something doesn't feel right, like you should abandon it. Even if you want to make it, you really want to make it work, like you may come back to that later. Uh, And the freedom you get from dropping things that aren't serving you in this moment is magical. I love it. We've been very inspiring about the things that inspire us. And with that, help me with the music, William. You're asking for help with the music, but we'll either either have this because it's already recorded, or what are you gonna do? You're gonna oh, we can change it later. Nah. (laughs) Or Or what if every week Andrew just tries again? (laughs) <laughs> yeah you could just try out a, a new theme song, <laughs> song every week. week that's not a bad idea yeah after after this I mean, first season you... of ed tech cafe i'll just be a, a straight up music producer dj moose yeah dj andrew well i guess we should start <laughs> welcome to our first official episode of ed tech cafe a podcast series produced by the educational technology team at Stanford School of Medicine. 
Our team sits at the intersection of art, science, and education, and in this space, we'll sit down with other media and production-savvy professionals to discuss how they use their talents to support science and improve educational outcomes across the globe. I'm Jessica Whittemore, and I'm joined by my hmm, thought-provoking co-hosts, William Bettini and Andrew Beck. Hi. <laughs> Sup? How are y'all doing today? <laughs> you know, um, there are times when I'm unsure of a question or a prompt, and I maybe expect dead air, and that wasn't one of them. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I've been working, um, as we mentioned on the last episode, I had an unfortunate accident, and I cannot really use my right hand right now, mm. um, and I have been working... Um, most of the day actually trying to get some new directions out to our art team uh, typing with one hand is physically exhausting so <laughs> oh my god on top of my pain medicine and my antibiotics i'm pretty spent but otherwise just your I'm left hand happy. oh just his right hand oh the well, right hand is not my right hand's hand. injured my left hand has been flying all over the keyboard I mean, I'll tell you, like, how do you do, like, a capital P? You have to hold the shift button on the left side of the keyboard with your pinky and hit the P button with your thumb. You know, it's you do have two unnatural. shift keys, one on the right side closer to the P's. So, yeah, 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 center. Andrew. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like that's also a, a mental workout because yeah. we all no, know No, I have been learning it. Yeah. Right right hand shift. I have an, an ergo keyboard, so I wouldn't even oh. be able to do that. I think I just have to give oh. up. Which is a whole nother skill, I middle. think. Yeah. I have a completely satisfying and engrossing mechanical keyboard, um, which makes these uh, lar loud uh, clickety-clackety sounds. So as frustrating as it is, it's also somewhat satisfying do you ever uh are you ever surprised at how like second nature typing is because of your just you know being limited to just one hand or do you feel like you're way more conscious of how you type things now you know i i'm this experience has made me realize uh that text uh, speech to text is a good thing that needs to be better because it is so hard to type on a keyboard when you don't have full use of both hands and I only have to deal with this temporarily. What a great accessibility lesson. Add it, add it to your pile of lessons. Yeah. You, you know what? Like, um, like on, on that note, and this is, this is ed tech related voice to text is an important technology in education that I think our generation, maybe I'll just speak for myself, like I, I've always hated it because Siri sucks. There's something super creepy about all of these voice assistants like, a, you know, Alexa and Cortana and whatever. But um, my fiance teaches guitar and piano to children mostly and they have a completely different relationship with these voice assistants where the voice assistants are something that they constantly use and older people who are not computer literate such as my neighbor who's 80 years old also uses voice assistants and voice to text because it is so hard to use like an iPhone for example, if you didn't grow up with computers or any of this. So I think it's just important to realize that like, different groups of people uh, find incredible value in the things that you think are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm learning that now. Uh, yeah. And even when you, uh, you like raise the font um, or like um, raise the size of your keyboard or something, I mean, it... It, it seems like it's a real handicap to some folks, certain demographics. 
I mean, they must have great enunciation, articulation, or something. Uh, yeah. Because Siri never understands me. <laughs> I was gonna say that I sometimes I don't like voice to talk or voice to text because I'm soft spoken and I feel like I have to really push my sound out in order to do it, and that makes me more tired. But that's why it's important to have all different options. I would have thought as a theater actor, you you wouldn't have a problem. Listen, you gotta, you gotta turn it on and you turn it off. You can't keep it on all the time. Huh? What did you say? I couldn't understand <laughs> you. No, I'm just kidding. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> uh, so we're at the EdTech Cafe, and I know I have my tea. It's a sweet rose tea today, mm. which was out of the grocery stores. Um, this is one of my favorite teas, and during COVID, Jessica's I was rubbing her mug. As she's saying this? It says feminist. You can say that too. Um, but I couldn't find it for a few months, actually. And I just found it this last week for the first time. So I'm very excited about that. But with every tea, we, we need a treat. <laughs> William, do you have a treat of the day for us? Something to, to satiate us or give us a little pick-me-up? Did you say treat of the day? <laughs> treat, treat of the of day. Treat of the 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 day. Yeah. <laughs> okay, treat of the day. Um, so we normally open this segment by asking, what flavor profile is this treat of the day? Sorry, uh, William, what flavor profile is this treat of the day? <laughs> <laughs> well... You know what? It's bitter. Oh, um, no. Oh, no. We'll start bitter, <laughs> but what I am hoping that we can do is talk a little bit about sweetness by the end. <laughs> Love it. Okay, so um, just to introduce the story, I will read a little bit of Stanford President Mark Tessier Levine's statement on this, which he released on July 8th. As many of you know, on Monday, the federal government announced modifications to its rules for international students taking online courses in fall 2020. The new rule would provide that non-immigrant students cannot be physically attending universities in the United States if they are taking all of their courses online in fall 2020. Under that rule, they will be given a student visa only if they will be taking some courses in person. And if they are here and the pandemic circumstances do not allow them to take an in-person course, they must either leave the United States or transfer to another university offering in-person courses. So that's the story, and I, I'm, I'm sure it's been heard by a lot of people at this point. I feel, and, and he goes on to um, reiterate their incredible opposition to this policy by the United States government, as have many universities. Um, and what I wanted to do is, I don't know, just reflect a little bit on immigrant students, or rather, I should say, visiting students from other countries. International um, students. Internet. Sorry, yeah. I'd like to reflect on, I guess, our own experience learning with international students and just kind of have a dialogue about it because I think it's important to, to talk about this. Um, you know what? I, I, I'll just start by saying that um, for my master's program, I uh, went to California College of the Arts in San Francisco and Oakland. And for my master's program um, in design, uh, I would... I think that over 60% of my class was international and from a variety of places, Spain, China, India, Japan. And I, you know, I found an incredible bond with, with these students. It was enlightening for me to meet people from all around the world and to see their kind of work and what they're thinking about. And, um, 
And I know that, you know, it's hard for people who come here uh, for school to then have to leave after school. And I'm just thinking how how terrible and uh, it must be not only for the students, but also for the schools that they go to, to imagine that all of these students are being forced to go back home, um, especially in light of the pandemic and all of the various travel restrictions um, that make traveling in general difficult. Um, yeah, somebody else jump in. I mean, I, I don't know. I just I feel really disturbed by this policy. Yeah, this is what I think of it. Can you guys hear that? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, Andrew, we can hear it. Just making sure my sound library works. Um, no, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you, William. I mean, um, a university, a college, is supposed to be a place where you're supposed to broaden your horizons. You're supposed to learn things outside of your comfort zone. Um especially when it really feels like a governmental policy problem rather than having foreign international students here. Like, having them here isn't accelerating the spread of COVID right now. It's all these other things, uh, mostly domestic problems. And really taking it out on them is almost bordering on xenophobia in a way that does what, feel what do you mean bordering on that's its only goal right it's not rooted in health and safety policy it's it's an unconscionable attack on people from other countries people who are the other it's an attack on our our higher acad uh higher education institutions and it's just i mean it's it's wrong and offensive in so many ways. Traveling, I've had the privilege to feel, is one of the best ways to open up your perspective and to get just a whole new way of looking at things. And having international students in our higher education institutions is bringing a taste of that to share with other students. It's like, it's a beautiful experience. It's a beautiful tradition. And as we can say about many um, things that this administration does, the cruelty is the point. The only point of this is to be cruel towards students who are not from America. And is there any clarity on um, just how all of this will be enforced, both by the federal government and also, if the university is dedicated and committed to protecting its international students, what these institutions will do or can do to protect them? Hmm. Is well, there, there any clarity on this? There are a couple of things to say. Um, in terms of enforcement, it is they, the um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, ICE, has said that they will not issue visas to students at schools that are operating completely online in the fall and um, uh, international students will be barred from taking all of their classes online so basically these students will be here without a visa which opens them up to being um, uh, deported sent back home to, yeah to being deported if you know they're caught um and the reaction, I think, you know, something that is heartening is that the, the reaction against this decision is loud and clear from our universities and also the students and people who uh, support these students. I, I for, for instance, I was seeing, um, in, you know, in addition to public statements by universities like, like our own university, there are lists being generated um, of uh, schools that students could transfer to if they needed to transfer. 
Um, there are companies that are offering to sponsor students um, who may otherwise be sent back to their home countries. And then the, the, the final thing is that um, all of these schools, while suing the government and denouncing these rules, are also having to quickly, you know, in the next month and a half or so, reformat their um, plans for the fall semester in order to protect these students from deportation. So, for instance, you know, Stanford is going to have to revise how they were initially planning to have a safe fall 2020 uh, semester to protect the large number of international students going to the school, both undergraduate and graduate and researchers. And um, I would just, you know, also add that, you know, in addition to students, a great number of the faculty that we work with are not originally from America and that that they came here through school systems and, you know, they were able to stay here because they entered through university and now are able to contribute to uh, our society through their work at the at our schools. You know, this is I mean, it doesn't it's obvious, but I think it bears repeating that that uh, immigrants do incredible good by coming to America. And I, I just I'm so disturbed by this. And uh, I am heartened by the response of all of the schools and, and um, professional groups that are coming out to support all of these students. Yeah, I'm glad that everyone is taking this as seriously as it deserves to be taken. Um, and it's a, another reflection of the growing support that immigrants in America are getting from the people of America, if not our government. Um, so I think for the first time since the Gallup poll asked this question, since maybe the early 1960s, uh, for the first time, more Americans desire immigration to increase in America than want it to decrease, which is wonderful. It makes us stronger, more diverse, more creative and beautiful. Um, I guess you were able to turn that from bitter to sweet a little, William. <laughs> Although we'll we'll see how that uh yeah how it turns out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's maybe just like focus on on that sweetness a little bit. I think I think what you're saying does really give me a sweet feeling, you know, that I mean, in light of the racism and xenophobia, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that exist in our government and throughout the country. A healthy dose of anti-intellectualism. Plenty of that. I think that the more that that rears its head, the more we see people stepping up to reject it wholeheartedly and loudly and clearly. And I think, you know, you don't want to say that bad things happen so that good things can come out of it. But oftentimes that is, is what we see is, and I think, I think that this generation and the generation after ours are, are loud and angry about uh, injustice. And I think it is really inspiring to see that, um, you know, front and center in this year, a rejection of all of these things that are that our president uh, stands for. I mean, it is pretty amazing that all these things are coming together at like this very, almost like a critical mass. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, the momentum will just keep, you know, stay like we don't want, you know, I mean, a big problem is burnout and people feeling like things are hopeless, things aren't changing or anything like that. But, uh, you know, when society does reach a critical mass like this, um, hopefully it will spill over and really start to affect things in a positive way. Gosh, it bothers me that the administration looked at this global pandemic shutdown 
and saw an opportunity to be more racist and xenophobic. But that was great, William. You did turn it around. I was worried about having a bitter treat uh, all morning. Yeah, just, you know, take that away from it. I, I wanted this I wanted this treat to have some sweetness, and there is sweetness in the way that people are responding. Yeah, we love to rant and complain, but we're not in the business of bringing any listeners down. <laughs> it may raise questions about, or it does raise questions about the importance of place and what online education means and looks like and its relation to place. But I don't really know if I feel up to talking about that right now. Well, that was a wonderful treat, William. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm ready for the main entree. <laughs> you know, sorry. <laughs> I I'm aware that I was supposed to transition to our to our interviews with our guests, but I saw that line you wrote for me, Andrew, about main entree, and I hated it. There's no main entree at the cafe. We're just meeting up with our friends. Yeah, our friends That's are walking through the cafe door and we're oh, waiting I at them. Oh, I see them. Look, Come it's here. Carlos and Sime. Let's hear what they have to say. Well, Sime and Carlos, do you feel like you got enough of a warm-up <laughs> uh, checking all your levels? Are you feeling, feeling uh, ready to jump I into it? I think I'm ready, as I'll ever be. Yeah. I think as I'll ever be is the key. It's the key phrase here. Yeah. Our guests today are Carlos Sanchez and Simei Johnston. They are both from the Stanford University Digital Medic Team, which is a global initiative to train healthcare workers in resource-poor communities worldwide. Carlos is a creative producer for Digital Medic, creating educational media. Before joining Stanford, he found his way to cable television and designed graphics for MTV's Catfish. In college, he studied film and media at UC Santa Barbara and made short documentaries for public access TV. He then took time to travel abroad and freelance before making San Francisco his home. In his free time, he loves to cook spicy food and read memoirs. And Simei Johnston is the learning experience designer at Digital Medic and specializes in the visual communication of scientific and medical information through a variety of media. She believes that creative visualization provides a rare power to engage learners, simplify complexity, and inspire research. Previously, Simei worked at Macmillan Learning, developing HTML5 interactive science modules, and created surgical and anatomical <laughs> illustrations at Body Scientific International. She is a certified medical illustrator and holds an MS in biomedical visualization from the University of Illinois at Chicago. I asked y'all if you were ready, but I should have prepared myself more before those bios. <laughs> oh, I haven't heard mouthful. that one read out loud in a long time. <laughs> Yeah, I hope you guys are okay. I did ask for your bios at one point, but I just kind of uh, cheated and went on the Digital Medic website to steal it. See, mate, this is maybe one of those great examples of it's always great to read aloud. Our right. Text. <laughs> I'm not saying yeah, Carlos, it sounded great. I think mine is a little <laughs> it's a little stiff. Um, I don't know. I don't know. You both sound legit. Exactly. Where did you pull mine from? I don't even know where that came from. <laughs> well, welcome, you guys. Thanks for joining us on our first official first episode. I feel you know? so formal. It's a big, uh, it's a big uh, honor, really, to have you guys with us. <laughs> well, thanks for inviting us as your first guest. So I, I think maybe... I mean, Jessica, unless you wanted to kick things off uh, a little differently, I thought I was I was just going to like check in on them to see uh, how they're doing during COVID-19, because, you know, obviously it's like the lingering cloud over everyone's heads right now. And it's obviously like shaped a lot of how our workflow has been. Um, this is like kind of the new normal for all of us. So, so yeah, I think I think we'd love to know how work has changed for you since 
uh, all of us now have the luxury of being able to work from home. Um, so we're just interested in how working from home has changed changed the work that you do. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been an adjustment for all of us over the, the last few months. Um, actually, maybe less so for our team because our, our core team is really split between California and Cape Town. So we already were using a lot of the same tools like Zoom meetings uh, regularly and communicating over Slack and navigating that whole space. Um, so it's really just kind of pushed it more in that direction for us. And yeah, so I think personally, it's been interesting just being home all the time. Um, I previously worked remotely 100%, so that wasn't too different. But trying to do that with a toddler underfoot was interesting for, for a while before we were able to get some childcare. <laughs> so, yeah, doing okay. I think for about, me, about uh, calls, it yeah. seems like our work changed a lot because... Uh, we started basically making videos all about COVID. And so like, at least in the first few months when like, I was just like absorbed with the news, like I'd basically be working on COVID related stuff and like the virus. And then I would like watch TV and like see it. So it was kind of like, I was trying to escape it. Mm -hmm. I think in the beginning, it was really stressful. Mm -hmm. um, but now it's become just like normal, I guess. So. Yeah. Y'all have been producing a lot of videos, well, not just videos, but all sorts of different um, assets that people can use to educate on COVID best practices, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we basically shifted. <laughs> go ahead, Sime. No, you go ahead. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say, yeah, it seems like we shifted sort of our priorities a lot, and we were not really sure what our team was going to be doing um, this year. But now it's like we have this like new focus, which is nice. Um, what were you going to say, Sime? Um, yeah, I was just going to say we kind of paused some of the previous work that we were doing and, and really focused on the COVID uh, public education toolkit for a long time. Um, yeah, so just creating a, a, a lot of resources and kind of preventing the spread of the virus, mental health. And yeah, just <laughs> have you have you had any um, groups? start to use your resources? Like, have you gotten any feedback on that? Yeah, we have. Um, that's one of the, the great things that's kind of come out of this whole uh, pandemic situation for us. It's just the new collaborations with, uh, with other organizations. So uh, some of our assets have been used by Medic Mobile and their curriculum for community health workers, uh, working with kind of Precult and uh, their work with the WHO. Uh, it seems like there's been so much flux in the guidance on preventing COVID and what the best way to live during this time is. Have you been like subject to like the the various twists and turns in, in the research and how do you deal with that? Yeah, <laughs> that's been an <laughs> ongoing challenge throughout this whole process. You know, we don't want to be at the forefront pushing things that we don't know are evidence based. But at the same time, mm. the evidence is kind of on, ongoing and the research is kind of always changing. So an example of that would be the recommendations on mask wearing. At the beginning, we were you know, following the WHO's recommendations on on wearing masks and you know, preserving that for healthcare workers, and recently, you know, we've been having to to rethink how we're designing our visuals to 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 work with the new recommendations to universal mask wearing. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's ongoing, and I think we're we're trying to to keep up with it and just design in a way that is easy to adapt and, and update later on if needed. Well, Are, is there? Oh, go ahead, Jessica. Go ahead, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> no, you go. Okay, I will go because I was gonna kind of take a step back um, and just for any of our new listeners um, or just any listener in general. Uh, a little context would be great. Like, what is this group that you guys are working for? What is Digital Medic? Yeah, so Digital Medic is a an initiative from the Stanford Center for Health Education. And uh, our focus is really on creating high-quality health education materials for, uh, for communities across the globe. So thinking about the content in 
a way that is scalable and adaptable uh, and really just identifying what are the highest priority uh, topics that, that need content. And so you guys really just have shifted focus completely to COVID-19 like before, before COVID-19, what were some like videos you guys would work on or what kind of projects would you guys work on? So, yeah, we, we have really shifted focus uh, to COVID recently. We have also kind of resumed some of the projects that were put on hold. So Carlos and I were doing some work with our kind of the parent organization on an AI and healthcare specialization uh, going out on Coursera. We also have been uh, adapting a lot of our content uh, for different uh, into different languages for South Africa population. So a lot of our content is on maternal and child health mm. and kind of uh, reaching uh, different audiences throughout South Africa primarily. Uh, but uh, and, the, and the group was kind of started as an initiative, right, by um, a couple faculty members who already had this kind of experience and like interest in... in um, creating these kinds of videos like Maya Adam, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a couple of faculty had a, a big part of the, the beginning of digital medic, um, Dr. Shakti Srivastava and clinical anatomy, um, pioneering the, the focus with medical education, mm -hmm. um, producing content and anatomy that was adapted into, uh, um, digital format. And also working Who, with Maya Adam. Both of whom, both of whom will be guests on uh, Irfan Mojadam's EdTech podcast, Teachers and White Coats. Just a quick plug. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of work with Maya on uh, kind of breastfeeding and nutrition, maternal child health. So she actually established our team in South Africa when she lived there for a year. I'm interested if there are anything that y'all have learned from work during COVID or the process of uh, these like rapid fire turnaround for COVID materials, if any of that will affect your future work once we are out of this. Uh, I mean, who knows when we'll be out of this pandemic, but anything that you- 2021. <laughs> anything you'll be taking with you forward. Carlos, do you want to go first? <laughs> yeah, Carlos, I, I feel like you've been quiet. <laughs> Let's hear from you. Well, nothing comes to mind. I feel like our work is just different and I wish it could be better and go back to kind of how it was before. So I'm trying to think of what I've learned so far. Sime, do you have like an answer? Uh, sort of. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's been learning how to collaborate across time zones and remotely and really just learning how to be a little bit more bold in our decisions. Um, I think having to work rapidly, you need to make creative decisions and, and go with them. And, and that can be really difficult, especially when the direction is a little unclear at the beginning. And I think for me, you know, I, I've learned a little bit about defining and, and communicating to the team, you know, how, how we're working together. And then really, you know, for this project, it was interesting because our core team was expanded by all of this amazing help from, from your team actually, and some others. So uh, we had some volunteer medical students who joined and you know, they were on pause with their clinical rotations. And so we had some extra time to help out. And so all of a sudden we were a lot larger, maybe double our size and wow. kind of navigating how to um, just keep everybody's time and skills, you know, making the, the most use of those and, and ha having everyone have a fulfilling experience. I think that's, it's always challenging in, in person. So doing that remotely has been interesting. <laughs> I mean, I know with my friends who are in um, media production and similar industries, I, I know a bunch of them have felt like they were, they've become less productive 
um, and less focused, uh, even though they do get the same things done, but just on like a minute to minute, hour to hour basis, uh, they feel less productive. But it sounds like for you guys, just because, I mean, you guys like in a way doubled in size, you're dealing with different time zones. Like it's almost like you guys have to stay more on top of it to keep everything on track. It definitely feels that way. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. I think that we actually have kind of boosted our productivity definitely with extra capacity in terms of how many people are on the team, Um, but really learning how to make use of that 24 hour work day that we had always joked about at the beginning of digital medic Um, that actually has kind of come to pass. and, And, you know, some of us working odd hours, depending on you know, childcare requirements and um, just the work needed. Sometimes our days overlap in you know, late night with our team in, uh, in Cape Town starting their day. And uh, it's kind of interesting to, to task something at the, around 11 or 12 at night and then wake wow. up to it being done in the morning. It feels pretty good. <laughs> mm. Wow. So it sounds like y'all are being even more productive and working faster than usual. But are you taking care of yourselves? I was just going to say, you got to double up the beauty time too, self-care time. Get rid of those eye bags. Have either of you found something new uh, to do for self-care that you're finding joy in? I live really close to Twin Peaks. And so like... A lot of my breaks, I'll just go walk up there and it's like a nice little hike and I have a good view of the city and I don't get cell service. I don't get my Slack notifications. Um, so that's what I've been doing. Nice. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. It's really nice. Yeah. I mean, uh, just hearing you speak a little bit about working on COVID-19 stuff all day and then you check the news and it's the same sort of thing. I think they call it doom scrolling, right? When you're just reading all of this insane, <laughs> terrible news that has been happening. It, it it must be good to just zone out and be completely disconnected. Mm-hmm. And then I also started rewatching like old series that I used to be really into. And it's like, it's kind Ooh. of like I've traveled back in time in a little ways. It's like I do it every day during lunch. I watch an episode of Desperate Housewives and Avatar. Oh, that's your nostalgia. <laughs> oh, you know, you know, it's funny, Carlos. It's bizarre. Is, I don't know why. <laughs> I've been watching Rock of Love. Oh my god! <laughs> you know, Brett Michaels Brett tries Michaels. to find his mm-hmm. true love from 2007 to 2009. I find that I think it's really. I'm so glad that you mentioned Desperate Housewives because I feel like. There's something about this reality TV from like, you know, 10 years ago that is just so, I don't know. I can't relate to any of it (laughs) on a personal level. It's just so (laughs) nice to be taken into this bizarre world. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It feels like, you know, for that hour, we're not in the current times anymore. It's like. That was kind of the the peak of reality TV. I think like with the hills (laughs) and all that. Or maybe catfish uh, would qualify up there, right, Carlos? <laughs> oh, wow, what a transition. Carlos, tell us about working on catfish, man. Yeah. What's the saddest story you worked on on catfish? The saddest story. Um, Wait, and really, me, qu- really quickly, you, you designed graphics for them? Is that what you did? I Yeah, I was a graphic artist, so I basically had to recreate a lot of the screens. I don't know if you've seen the show, but a lot of it is like looking at people's Facebook pages or their Instagrams or like stuff on their phones. And so like, if you do a recreation, they don't always have that footage. So I have to like recreate a Facebook of someone or like recreate like a text message or something like that. Whoa, um, that sounds like very complicated and detailed work. It was interesting. Like I've never thought about like the design of like web pages before. And so like I had to like sort of mimic those looks, but still using After Effects to like fake it as if it was a real mm. sort of interaction. Um, but so your question was, what was like sad about the show? Because <laughs> the show as a concept <laughs> seems quite sad. What, what is the concept of the show for people who don't know? The concept is basically these two guys sort of get a call from someone who suspects they are being lied to online. Um, So these people are often like 
meeting people online and they develop a relationship, but they feel like something is off or like the person doesn't want to meet, or there's just like something that is preventing the relationship from getting further. So they call these two guys to like sort of come in and investigate and sort of help them sort of move the relationship further. And usually it's like a person who's like on the other end lying about themselves or like they have some ulterior motive. Like a lot of them are revenge cases. Um, and so that's basically, it's like investigative kind of, um, that's what the show is about. Um, and they developed the idea of being catfished when they first like made a documentary about the host being catfished. And so that's kind of how the term came to be used. And people after the show came out were a lot more skeptical of online dating and sort of wanted to verify, you know, if the person they're talking to is actually the real person or if they're using fake photos or I don't know. Is that a good summary of the show? (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Um, Well then how did, how uh, then taking a a step back even further, um, you studied film and media in UCSB, but was that, was film and kind of media production in general just something you've always had an interest in? Or is that something you discovered in college? Like, how did you get into that whole field? I guess it would probably go back to high school. I remember I was in the Spanish class and the teacher always gave us the option of making a film instead of writing an essay in Spanish. And so I always did like the film assignment. Um, And I remember like for one of them, I made this like horror movie about La Llorona and I like got my sister to like run around screaming and (laughs) like my friend was like the crazy woman. And like, so anyways, I made this horror movie and like everyone in the class really liked it. And I, they were just like, oh, you're really good. Like you should like keep making more. And then I um, sort of joined the student news program and created more videos for like about what was happening on campus. And then I applied to film school. Um, And so that's kind of how I got there. How fun. I love that a Spanish teacher perhaps changed your your whole life. She really did. She wasn't the best Spanish teacher, I'll be honest, (laughs) but she did (laughs) impact my life. Because she was a a film teacher in disguise. (laughs) (laughs) Secretly, yeah. She had another motive. I mean, that was kind of... Go ahead, Willie. Do you think you'll ever return to Spanish horror? <laughs> you know, now that I'm talking about it, I feel so excited. It's like I want to just make one this weekend or something. It's like... Yeah. It's kind <laughs> of in right now. Is it in? Yeah. Like, uh, there's a lot of, like, Guillermo del Toro uh, produced uh, things. Like, um, I forget all the names, but um, a lot of them are in Spanish. Okay. And there was just that short film collection released on Netflix, uh, uh, people making short films in isolation. Um, That sounds creepy. Yeah, I was curious how this is going to look, Carlos, doing proper social distancing. (laughs) Will you be playing all the different parts? I mean, it's all in the music, right? That's like Like what makes it. Yeah. I have a few wigs and I have costumes. I can carry this. Yeah. Oh. I'm ready. <laughs> I want to see this. Well, all of us made a horror movie when I first joined Stanford. It was like my we first did. week. Yeah. So that was fun. That's right. That was so fun. 48-hour so film this, project. The project was make a movie in 48 hours um, with uh, certain requirements like a character name, a line of dialogue, a prop, and like a theme. And ours was called The Perfect Host. It was a Thanksgiving-themed horror movie <laughs> um, in which Lauren plays... Uh, Lauren, who's on our team and is also working with you on Digital Medic stuff, uh, plays this really creepy uh, Thanksgiving dinner host. And we come into her house and there are no other guests what's going on that was like your second week that was so fun to do it was a good like introduction to the team and the craziness we developed definitely a few eye bags after that (laughs) and we totally trashed kim's house or her condo it was like a mess with like bloody food and like yeah it was bad i'm so sorry i missed that that was before my time Hmm. 
You know, Lauren got nominated for Best Actress for the entire competition. <laughs> um, I think our, our work was really well received. And uh, I felt like we all worked pretty well together as a team. Um, and we managed to turn in our USB with the video just five minutes before the deadline. Wow. Yeah, I remember you guys were racing on the freeway trying to get it to San Francisco, right? Wasn't that the drop-off location or somewhere? Yeah, and and like a, like two of the USB di- uh, drives that we had were like failing and the like video export was corrupted. It was a nightmare. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> um, One... and s- yeah, go ahead. No, you do it. No, no, go ahead. I was just gonna. I was just gonna move on to Cime because uh, I wanted to hear from her too a little bit about yeah, her background. I want to hear from Cime too. But talking about talking about that film project, um, it's a great example of how both of our teams, uh, EdTech and Digital Medic, are so rooted in art, and both teams are very supportive of uh, everyone exploring art. And I just love how that supports the science and education that we do, which Sime, you may be like the best example of that, literally being a master of uh, medical illustration. How, how did you get into that? Hmm. Well, <laughs> I don't know if I would call myself a master of it, but I have had formal training. So um yeah, it took me a little while to come to the field. I started undergrad, like probably like 90% of other undecided students as a pre-med and uh, spent a lot of time in the lab and felt like my creative side was getting neglected. So I switched gears and became a studio art major and uh, then graduated. I had no wow, idea what, what to do with it. <laughs> so yeah, I spent like three years working in Chicago uh, at a nonprofit organization not related to what I had studied and just making art on the side, kind of trying to figure out what to do with my life. And we have too many doctors anyway, not enough artists. Exactly. But you kind of have to have a persona to do studio art. I feel like it wasn't quite there for me. And and I really did like the analytical side of science. And and so I stumbled upon actually the Association of Medical Illustrators website and discovered that this was actually a legit profession. Um, People had always told me I should... Uh, illustrate textbooks, which sounded really boring. But then when I saw their website, I realized it was so much more and there were actually grad programs for it. So I quit my job and went to Florence, Italy for a drawing program to work on my portfolio. And uh, thankfully, because of my pre-med background, I had all the science requirements already. So I did that and then went to grad school, came back to Chicago actually for that and ended up getting my first job in textbook illustration, <laughs> So is that <laughs> which a, it, was not too bad actually. So is um, that like how you have to, or is that how you become a certified illustrator? Like, do you need both, especially cause it says certified medical illustrator. Um, do you not just need like a portfolio of, of artistic work, but also some kind of Um, pre-med or medical background? Yeah. So a lot of people come to it through the the formal programs. I mean, there are really just a handful of them. It's a pretty small field, um, but they all include some component of science, uh, like a gross anatomy course, uh, pathophysiology, things like that. Wait, did uh, did you just mean gross, like disgusting? No, like the whole body, <laughs> not microscopic anatomy. Some, some anatomy but it works both can ways, be. Come really. on, <laughs> I'm just making sure. Yeah, that first semester was a lot of a lot of time with with the cadaver lab. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's it's really a combination of the science and art and some instructional design as well, kind of bringing them both together. Now, is that certification more 
um, in the like background science knowledge that you have that supports your illustration work? Or is it also rules that are followed when doing medical illustrations? It's a combination. So um, for board certification, you sit through an exam that covers, I think, some science, some drawing, actually, and some business stuff. It's been a while since I took it. Um, and then if you pass that, then you submit a portfolio of a portfolio of work that you created after school, so not student work, and then that gets reviewed and you either pass or don't. <laughs> and then you continue to get um, continuing medical education or CM. What are they called in my field? I keep thinking of continuing medical education, continuing education, something. <laughs> So, something. Yeah, something. So that's so cool that you went into undergrad saying, all right, pre-med, and then thought, yeah, switched to art, and then later found a way to combine the two. I just yeah. love that. Even my art was really informed by my love of biology. My senior show is mm. this ceramics show of uh, like these huge... 200 pound clay torsos. Um, <laughs> wow. I think I called it something like wound healing. And these were all like abstracted, like torn apart and kind of mushed back together. <laughs> wow. Um, I would love to see that. I would I too. <laughs> I don't know if I have pictures oh. to dig those up. <laughs> There's still one living in my parents' living room. <laughs> it's too heavy to move. Here's a question for you. What? is the most complicated part of the human body to draw. <laughs> Speaking of gross anatomy, uh, in, <laughs> in your personal experience. I'm going to have to go with the female reproductive system. Oh, dang. Which, as a woman, I probably should know it better. But my gross anatomy class, I was assigned to a male cadaver. And so... <laughs> didn't get that up close personal um, experience and yeah it's just an area that's very like lots of soft things all in a very tight <laughs> space and I recently did some illustrations for a cesarean hysterectomy and oh, my yikes. brain was hurting trying to think through which way ligaments were going and the angles of things and how it all fit together but yeah, yeah, we worked on that right before COVID. Me, right? Yeah. <laughs> Carlos animated some some really great suturing. Actually, I had fun with that. I know your part was probably not as fun, but mine was. Yeah, it was fun. Okay. <laughs> I really liked it. It was kind of a, a return to more traditional medical illustration. Well, what exactly we were you guys doing? We did some medical illustrations to accompany a filmed video of a surgical procedure. It's oh. uh, basically a oh. life-saving procedure that helps women whose placenta have grown into their uterus. And so this can oh. cause really, really oh, severe geez. bleeding and they end up having an emergency C-section and hysterectomy. So, oh, wow. We did some of the art to kind of make sense of the the gore that you see in, in the actual filmed procedure. Maybe that's why they call it, you know, the miracle of life, because however, uh, however life gets to <laughs> start in that complicated reproductive system is uh, mind boggling. <laughs> I was like, where are you going with this, Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> I was also nervous. <laughs> um, hey, listen, mad respect, mad respect. It's nothing but love and respect. For it. Yeah, every time I hear about the work that y'all's team is doing, it just feels like you're actively making the world a better place. And like a lot of the stuff at EdTech, or some of it, a lot of it also does that. But I feel that way about every single project that you'll have. Do you think about that? Does it feel different than other work you've done? 
like MTV Catfish. Yes, like MTV Catfish. It definitely does feel, at least for me, yeah, especially that big transition from going from MTV Catfish to Stanford. (laughs) But with Catfish, Um, you were educating people about the dangers of... Online dating. Online dating. (laughs) Which, it's true. Like, a lot of teenagers did watch the show and, you know, some of them before were, like, running away from home meeting strangers in person, so... There was a good side of the show, I will say. Can you also tell us, Carlos, how you transitioned into science and working? Or maybe Stanford in general. Yeah. Well, I remember I applied to this job at Stanford when I was in Barcelona on this like never ending trip. Like I was there for like two months and I realized I needed to get a job because I was running out of money. (laughs) (laughs) The perpetual went, artist dilemma. Yeah. So I like before this, I like quit my job. I was in Santa Barbara and just kind of wanted to travel and ended up in Spain. And I was like living with this like acrobat who like rented me a room <laughs> because I was getting denied on Airbnb. Like it was like this whole thing. But eventually I found a place with this acrobat and I was like, I should probably apply for jobs and think about my future because this has to end sometime. Um And so I did most of my interviews while I was in Spain and I was going to come back for my sister's graduation. And I had my final interview with Andrew and Kim. Um, And I remember like me and going to, yeah, you, I do not remember this. (laughs) You don't remember this? I don't remember this. You know why you don't remember? Because I drove all the way for, I like got off from Spain, like went to my graduation, my sister's graduation. I think like the next day I drove all the way to Palo Alto from LA and you were not there in person. You were in Oakland on your couch (laughs) and Kim was also in Canada. So I just thought it was like funny that I like came from like the farthest place for this interview and like neither of you guys were actually there. (laughs) Oh no. We were anticipating the new normal. That's, that's all it was. But you know who was there? William was there and he like showed me around and stuff. So I met William, but um, yeah. Our team has always been all over. Yeah, so I feel like we were really remote from the beginning. I don't know. What was the question? I think we got lost in the story. <laughs> no, that was a great answer. It was more like, how did you find your way to Stanford? <laughs> so that's how I found yeah. my way. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I feel like like Bay Area traffic had forced us to adopt a more remote optional way of working several years ago because it's just so it's so painful to drive anywhere in the bay area during rush hour that like in a way it like prepared us for what's happened yeah we had to definitely work i mean i i remember ever since like i first joined stanford um yeah it was a bit of a selfish move at the time because I was the only one living so far away. But I was like, listen, guys, <laughs> like I would love to instill some kind of work from home schedule because coming down here five days a week was a bit untenable. And, you know, um, it felt like I was starting to lose my sanity a little bit. Well, y'all are currently working on COVID round the clock. Do you have any like parting words of wisdom. Um, I guess it doesn't have to be related to that, but you are. I mean, they, a listener should definitely field. check out the Digital Medic YouTube channel. Like, how do you find that, CMA Carlos? Is it just YouTube slash Digital Medic? Carlos was on it. I'm literally Googling it right now. <laughs> I would actually check out our website because I was gonna say, you can the website. see, yeah, you can see the the toolkit that we've put together and um, some of the customizable assets as well as the videos. Um, it's a pretty good resource, and we're proud of it. And the website uh, is digitalmedic.com. Digitalmedic.stanford.edu. Got it. Andrew's just making up URL. (laughs) Do not go to digitalmedic.com, listeners. (laughs) For another plug, we have a new course coming out on Coursera and edX for healthcare providers in COVID-19. So that's going to be launching, if all goes to plan, it's going to be launching July 17th. And we're really excited about that. Very cool. Congratulations. Thank you both so much for joining us. I uh, I learned some fun things about both of you. 
Yeah, um, thanks so much for coming, you guys, for honoring us uh, and helping us break in the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, this is fun. It's fun to talk about what we do sometimes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hope it wasn't too painful. <laughs> I don't know, my bio is a little painful. Maybe we can re-record that one. <laughs> <laughs> we can always re-record or dumb over it or something. Oh. Let's let's just do it all over again. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> From the top. Wow. What a wonderful conversation with our guests. I have so many more questions. I would love to sit and interview Carlos and Sime forever. But that is our show today. Thank you for joining us for EdTech Cafe. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast. And uh, hey, Andrew, give us our song. <laughs> <laughs>